0: Ladies and gentlemen, today we have a very special guest. Her name is Linda Ruscher and what makes Linda really special is she's 70 years of age and she works six days a week despite having a significant medical disability known as systemic lupus erythematosus now in my previous life i was a dermatologist so saying words like that are not that difficult but i'll explain that a little bit more as we go on because this is a disease really where a person's immune system gets totally out of whack and it causes a person to to have significant problems with their health it it really causes a lot of problems with things like um the blood clotting, it causes a lot of problems for with other things like rashes, it causes problems with anemia that goes on and even affects the kidneys in something called lupus nephritis. So it really is a difficult disease to meander. Now Linda at one point in her life was so badly affected she was on disability and couldn't do anything. Welcome, Linda.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Okay, so let's go back a couple of years when you were so badly affected and and having so many problems. Do you remember those days and, and how bad they were?
1: I do. I do. And looking back... Um, after my diagnosis at age 51, I realized that I had had this disease since I was 13 years old. I can point to my very first flare at the age of 13. So that one, um, I had been out in the sun on my little boat on Long Island for several days in the summer, not knowing that I had lupus, not knowing that the sun would make me sick. And I got deathly ill with a migraine and muscle pain and joint pain and feverish, couldn't get out of bed for three days, and nobody seemed to think that was awful.
0: Well, let's let's interject here a bit. Lupus is one of these diseases that the sun actually causes it to go into a very, very difficult state. When I was a dermatologist, I'd have people that would go to Hawaii not knowing they were at lupus and come back in terrible States because the sun is very intense in Hawaii. And I also had some of my patients who had lupus and I'd warn them about sunlight exposure and still go to Hawaii anyhow and come back in terrible States because they didn't listen to medical advice.
1: Yeah. Um, at the, I live in Florida, the Sunshine State, and so I've learned lots of cool ways to manage it. You know, also teaching school, I can't not go outside ever, but I have sun protective clothing and I find little spots of shade and I stay away from it during the middle part of the day, um, but I never go out without being covered from head to toe.
0: Now, the other thing that you said that was quite apropos is that you thought you had it since the age of 13, and it took till the age of 50 to really get the diagnosis in you. This is what is the problem with this disease. This is a multi-system disease with multiple manifestations, and it's very difficult for a doctor to make this diagnosis if they're not thinking down that path.
1: You know, I agree, because when I was diagnosed, um, I had been sick for months, again, with joint pain and profound fatigue, like not tired fatigue, like bone crushing fatigue. It's brutal. And at that time, I was going through a divorce. I was a single mom. I had four jobs and I was going to graduate school. I'm kind of an underachiever, you know, and um I was sick. I got sick around Christmas and I was still sick around Easter time. So I just said, "Mm, must be stress or something like that. And I did not pursue a diagnosis because I knew that every year I would get exhausted like that. And every summer when I was off, I would begin to recover enough and I'd say, "Eh, I'm okay." But this particular time I had been losing weight. I was terribly thin, which I thought was nice. But lupus can also affect your brain and your perception. There's a whole neuropsychiatric component that can happen. So I thought, look at this. I found my hip bones, but I couldn't breathe. It was like um, an elephant on my chest or something like that. So I got up that morning and showered and thought, I can't go to work, which is not like me. And I called a friend she came by took one look at me and called the ambulance i was in hospital 14 days before they came up with a diagnosis
0: well that's that's this is the difficulty again uh you would think doctors would know everything every time and and doctors are smart people but again if you're not thinking down that pathway you're not going to figure out what it is You know, doctors are always taught and uh, something they're always taught. If you hear hoofbeats, think of horses, not zebras. And the problem is you had a zebra, you did not have a horse. And that's the difficulty that was going on here. And again, if you're not thinking of it, if it doesn't fit on what's called the differential diagnosis, it doesn't come up. Now, of course, if you do the right tests, you can diagnose it fairly easily. But to get to the right tests, you have to figure it out. You can't order every test known to man on every patient.
1: Um, I I they put me through an upper lower G. I had no blood, and they didn't know why. So part of what I have with lupus is acquired autoimmune hemolytic anemia, which basically means my body thinks my red blood cells are prime rib and it eats them up. And so They knew that I was very low on blood, but they weren't going to give me any because they thought I must have been bleeding internally somewhere, despite the fact that I said, no, I'm not coughing up coffee grounds and I'm not having black tarry bowel movements. And they were going to check the upper and lower parts anyway. And they found nothing. And that was just part of it. They did a bone marrow biopsy, which is not very pleasant at all, Uh
0: I, I concur with you. I've had one of those once, and it is not very pleasant.
1: No. And all along the way, I read the entire chart a year later, and I saw how many different doctors they went through, and then they're writing notes that said, I'll follow after you, and I'll follow. And, you know, they would switch who had the lead until they called in rheumatology, and then we had a diagnosis.
0: Yeah. And again, uh You know, if you are a person looking at an elephant and you look at the leg and then you look at the tail and then you look at the back and then you look at the trunk, you're all looking at different parts of an elephant. Each one of them make up the elephant, but unless you look at the whole picture, you don't get the elephant. And each specialist looks at you from the point of view of their own disease spectrum. So if you have low blood, well, most people have low blood because they're bleeding someplace. So they want to scope you. If you have low blood, the next place is blood gets made in the bone marrow. So maybe we should look there and see what's going on there. See, maybe it's not being made. So each person is looking at you in their own unique way based on the elephant model of looking at things.
1: You know, I I went through this this year with um, urogynecology and I'd had this raging urinary tract infection. Not uncommon when you're taking immunosuppressive drugs, you get infections of, you know, because you're suppressing your immune system to control the disease. And I was in pain and I was incontinent and I'd be playing the organ and going to the bathroom at the same time. I found super underwear for that purpose. And they were looking at what was wrong like a little old lady who can't control her urine. Okay. And they wanted to do a zillion million tests. My primary ran another culture and they discovered that I had three different antibiotic resistant bacteria having a party in my bladder. And that started two days after I had my hip replacement. So I was like, there's gotta be something there. So I actually, said if it has stripes it's a zebra not a leopard to one of the doctors yeah
0: exactly and you know one thing i was always taught as a doctor is the first thing you take a history and you listen to the patient you take down all the things that are going on there and you take into account everything in the history there uh i i i it's possible that when you're getting your hip replaced, you had a catheter put in uh, for a while, and that is known to produce infections in the bladder uh, very, very commonly, because when you put a tube in an area that it shouldn't be in, infections do occur. Now, you with your compromised immune system, very likely that was one of the contributing factors.
1: I'm sure when I mentioned this to my rheumatologist, and by the way, I have more ologists than God has, honestly. Um, I also get my care at a teaching hospital, so there's always a fellow hanging around in my visits as well. And I mentioned it to them, and my rheumatologist turned to the fellow and just said one word that confirmed what I believed. She said, fully.
0: (laughs) Foley I catheter. Yes, I, I know that word well because I studied at the University of Minnesota Hospitals system and Dr. Foley was one of the hospital, was one of the doctors at one of those hospitals and he invented it while he was working there. So a Foley catheter is something that was invented uh, and is still used to this day and age.
1: Well, you learn something new every day, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right. So Let's go into this living with a chronic illness and how you do that now and how you were able to come out of complete disability and get to the phase you are now.
1: Okay. The, the disability was so overwhelming that I was unable to turn the key to turn the ignition in the car. And I had to lift my legs with my hands to get them in the car and then somehow struggled to turn the ignition. I'm lucky I didn't like crash somewhere, but it was that bad. And I was sleeping constantly and in wretched pain. I would stare at my hands and say, who do these belong to? They can't be mine. But um, and then at the point that the rheumatologist said, we think you have lupus kidney disease, nephritis, and let's do a 24 hour urine collection. And that showed I had nephritis and we did a kidney biopsy and I went on chemotherapy and I was the most depressed human being in the world at age 51. I said, look at this. I'm never going to be able to work. I'm going to be poor. My life is horrible. And I really didn't want to go on. And so I, I would think about when I go to bed, like maybe I won't wake up, wouldn't that be nice? And that began to frighten me. Uh, In As I thought about that more, it became very clear to me that I was at a level of depression that I couldn't just pull myself out of. So I went to see a psychiatrist thinking that if I had, perhaps I needed some chemical intervention to make me feel sane enough to have a talk intervention, you know, to deal with this. Uh, And he was useless and I was furious and he wanted to give me Lexapro and I declined and left the prescription there, but it was the furious part. Um, And these are all parts of stages of grieving because when you get that sick, you're grieving for yourself, even though you're still here. And so I was furious. I had no money, no job. My life looked like it was over. And I thought, wait a minute. If I'm going through this, other people have gone through it. And if they've gone through it, some of them came out on the other side. And some of those people wrote books. And I have a library card. I'm going to go find the books. And so I started reading everything I could find on chronic illness and discovered that more than half of all Americans have one or two or five. And I thought, mm, and I kept digging and digging. And then I volunteered with the Lupus Foundation. And ultimately that became a very part-time job. And in the process, I came across Stanford University's chronic disease self-management program. And I thought, oh, I should take this class, but there were no classes offered. So I volunteered to be trained to be a facilitator um, and and facilitated workshops for people with chronic illness for many, many years, and then went on to become a master trainer and train other facilitators. So that was part of it. It was taking the anger. It was taking the frustration and saying, I'm not the only person. There's got to be a way out. And it was this the learning and the reading that that did that for me. That's part of what turned it around.
0: I hear you. You know, when I went through my phases, when I was told I had ALS and uh, in 2003, I was told I had six months to live. I better get my affairs in order. I went through those same phases And, and the phases I went through were anger, you know, very angry. I was my, my daughters and my wife would say, what's wrong with you? You're angry all the time. And, but you know, when you're angry, you're angry. You're just angry. The only good thing I could say about anger is it motivates you. It pushes you to do something. And so there is a good component of it. The bad thing is that everybody in your, in your our surroundings gets hit by the fire. They get hit by everything. In it. The second thing is, is bargaining. You do things, you ask God, you say, God, please don't let this happen. I'll do anything if you don't let this happen. And you try to make a, a pact with him. You go through denial. Denial is, is a very bad one as well because denial is, you say, know, there's nothing wrong. I can do anything. I can really do anything that I did before, but you know there's something wrong and yet you can't do it. And then there's the depression and the depression is probably the worst where everything is black every day. And, and that blackness is something that really is nasty. You stay in bed all day, staring at the ceiling saying, why should I do anything? It's not going to matter anyhow, you know? And then the last phase of this is acceptance. Now you accept it in two ways. One is you accept it as, yes, I have a chronic disability. And the second thing you can accept is I can do something about this. I don't have to live a life as a moribund person. I don't have to live a life in a way I don't want to. All I have to do is grasp things and move away from it.
1: I would add, and this is my personal spin, because yes, I did read Kubler-Ross along the way. And that was a really difficult read, as unwell as I was at the time. But I also would add transformation and transcendence as two additional stages. So who you were, or who you thought you were, doesn't exist anymore. You're not healthy, you're not young, you're abilities may have been damaged, and that leaves holes in your life. And you can sit there staring at the holes, or you could put new stuff in the holes, which I did. When I had nothing left, I started doing other things. I started writing. I started painting, um, a number of things like that. So there's transformation. You transform from who you used to be. But the truth is, Everybody, as they age, has to go through that transformation in one way or another. And then at the end is transcendence. So I no longer identify myself as, hi, I'm Linda, I have lupus, but hi, I'm Linda. All right, so in some ways, I've transcended it. it it's cyclical. The problem is that you don't go through these stages once. They are a cycle and you cycle through them again and again and again. Um, Journaling every morning, three pages longhand is one of the ways I process that. But with each new diagnosis that comes with a disease or age, you find yourself going through the same thing. So I had my eyes checked and the optometrist ophthalmologist said, oh, I think you have early dry macular degeneration. And I found myself waving my finger at her saying, no, I'm not having that. (laughs) (gasps) But yes, I am treating it. But you know what I'm saying? I'm probably the most difficult patient you could ever have, honestly.
0: (laughs) Well, and, and you know, it's likely that when you were getting diagnosed to begin with, Part of the reason that diagnoses were difficult in you is your own personality and your way of dealing with things. So doctors wouldn't necessarily listen to you because of the person that you are and the person that you say you are. And so, you know, you you, you are a great person in that you overcome things. But you also were a bit of a denier along the way as well, because you didn't want to admit that you had something wrong.
1: True. Very true. Um, And as different things come up now, it's the same like, yeah, we're not doing that. Um, But it's easy to catastrophize. And so when you get a diagnosis or another diagnosis or something else goes wrong, then you play out these amazing horror stories in your head, all right? And if you have ALS, then you probably did that exactly same thing, that I was sure that at age 51, I was going to die a miserable death alone in a nursing home smelling like urine. That's what I thought. That was my scenario, Um, and it was pretty awful, and I embellished it like, oh, there's no doors on the rooms in nursing homes, and nobody will give you a bath, and it it just went on and on and on and on, so I had to learn that um, a very simple formula, and that is what we think causes what we feel, what we feel impacts our health. So I've been divorced twice. Both times I nearly died from lupus the year afterwards from the stress. All right. So it's the thinking that starts this whole cascade of chemical nonsense in your body, including ramping up your immune system, which is not good for me to have happen. And then you start feeling bad and catastrophizing about it. So the thing about this is you can choose what you think. You don't have to think the horror scenario. You can catch yourself and say, do I have any proof that this is going to happen? Do I have any evidence? No, I don't. So what are you doing this for? What I'm doing is wasting my present moment of my life by making up horror stories. So I had to learn to catch myself. And that's an ongoing process. You can't just do it once. It keeps They keep coming.
0: Yeah, and and I think that's true of any time you go through something catastrophic like you've done, that over and over and over again, the waves on the ocean keep coming. Occasionally, there's a giant wave that comes that really causes some problems. But even though those waves are coming, you have a plan for dealing with them. You have a way of overcoming them. They're not going to destroy you now you're going to rise above the water and really not let it harm you.
1: I like that analogy a lot. Um, I do. People, um, healthy people, especially, maybe sick people too, have to find or try to find a reason for what happened. And they have to do that so that they can assure themselves it's not going to happen to them so the example is i was being wheeled out of the ambulance um in 2003 and i was on the gurney and that's when i have had the 14 days in the hospital and my girlfriend was there and we'd gone to college together been friends forever she looked at me and she said if only you didn't smoke All right, it had nothing to do with smoking. Yes, smoking makes lupus worse. And no, I don't smoke anymore. I quit in two thousand four. But it wasn't about that. But she had to explain why her longtime friend was gasping like a fish out of water and as thin as a rail. And in her mind it had to be because I smoked. Yeah. So there's blame that gets blame and stigma that gets attached. And we do it to ourselves as well.
0: Now, Linda, I'm gonna change the chapter a little bit. This pod this uh this radio show is called How to Live a Fantastic Life radio show. Uh, how do you live a fantastic life now at the age of 70, having suffered with lupus all your life?
1: I chase sparkly objects <laughs> in a way. Um Things intrigue me, and I find that when I'm doing something like teaching or on the weekends, I have a church job as a classical organist. But when I turned 70, I also started doing a certificate program at Notre Dame University online. So things intrigue me, and learning and um, doing good in the world are essential to me living a fantastic life. So when I stuck my toes back in the water of the workforce, I found that I got healthier and healthier. Am I cured? Absolutely not. Am I healed? Yeah. And there's a difference. So a fantastic life is a healed life. It's being at peace with who you are and where you are right now, not wishing to be something else. And doing things of value. You know, I teach little kids. Well, I teach big kids too. But you know that you make a difference in the world. And I think that we all need that purpose. So part of living a fantastic life is having purpose. Another part is taking risks. So I travel. After I was diagnosed, I took high school students to Italy and France and England, even though I had all that stuff wrong with me. And the opportunity presented itself. Hey, Miss Linda, do you want to go to France? Okay. Where do, do I have to pay? What's, what is, no, I didn't ask anything. I just didn't hesitate and said, okay. Then this year I went to Manhattan and I went to New Orleans. I was staying a few blocks from Bourbon Street Friday night, I thought, you can't be in New Orleans and not experience Bourbon Street on Friday night. But I had a new hip. It was like six months old. And I was afraid people would knock me over. And I didn't bring my cane. I don't know why I didn't. But I went out, I thought, I'm going to go do this. I'm going on Bourbon Street at nine o'clock at night on Friday in New Orleans. Uh, So it's taking risks having purpose, taking risks, continuing to learn things. All of that stuff makes your life fantastic.
0: Sounds great, Linda. Unfortunately, we're close to the end of our time together here. And I want you to tell people about your three books, the names of them, and where they can get them.
1: Thank you. Yes, they're on Amazon. Um, The first one is called 100 Questions and Answers About Chronic Illness. And I co-authored that with a dermatologist, of all things. And then the second one was the No-Nonsense Support Group Guide, Practical Strategies for Leaders. And I wrote that to teach people how to successfully lead a peer support group, not where somebody's lecturing, but where you're facilitating. And then the third one was the one that I needed to write the most. It's called Life Recycled, Creating a New Normal in the Face of Chronic Illness. That one is 365 short daily meditations, kind of dislodging your head from your nether regions so that you can have a fantastic life.
0: Well, that's huge, Linda. Well, first of all, let me thank you for sharing such important intimate details today. I know it's so difficult to bare your soul and to talk about yourself in such a way that you have, but I'm sure it's going to help others because the way you've done it. And I'd like to thank you for spending this time with us.
1: Well, thank you, it has been my pleasure. I appreciate the work you're doing.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope to talk to you soon. Bye for now.